Thank you for listening to the Your Mindful Coach podcast. This is Mark Balser. Today's topic is the power of generosity. I see generosity as a building block of authentic, wholehearted living. It's a reminder of the connection that we have with all beings and the interdependence um, that we all have with each other. So I hope you enjoy it. If you'd like to learn more, visit my website, www.yourmindfulcoach.com, or send me an email to mark, that's M-A-R-C, at yourmindfulcoach.com. At the website, you can find a link to my blog, which will include links to some of the resources that I've talked about in this discussion. Thank you. With some inspiration from Sharon Salzberg and Adam Grant and many others, I recently led a session with meditators that I introduced as follows. I shared, a mindset of abundance facilitates the ability to let go and share our gifts with others. This doesn't mean we must always be generous. Powerful research connects generosity to happiness, but only if we are thoughtful about it. An overextended, burned-out giver is unlikely to experience the benefits of generosity. But through conscious, intentional generosity, both the giver and the receiver can experience this universal value. We often associate this winter holiday season with the quality of generosity, so I figured now was as good a time as any to take a look at it from several mindful angles in this talk. I think too often generosity is something we think we should be doing, almost as an obligation. So I hope some of the ideas I discuss will open your creativity in a different way uh, to help you best engage generously in the world in a way that nourishes not only others, but you as well. So I'd like to start by sharing a teaching story that I find meaningful. It comes from BBC News Magazine and was published originally around this time in 2010, December 24th. It's entitled, A Real Good Samaritan. One act of kindness that befell British writer Bernard Hare in 1982 changed him profoundly. Then a student living just north of London, he tells the story to inspire troubled young people to help deal with their disrupted lives. It goes as follows. The police called at my student hovel early evening, but I didn't answer as I thought they'd come to evict me. I hadn't paid my rent in months. But then I got to thinking. My mom hadn't been too good, and what if something was about her? We had no phone in the hovel, and mobiles hadn't been invented yet, so I had to nip down the phone box. I rang home to Leeds to find my mother was in hospital and not expected to survive the night. Get home, son my dad said. I got to the railway station to find I'd missed the last train. A train was going as far as Peterborough, but I would miss the connecting Leeds train by 20 minutes. I bought a ticket home and got on anyway. I was a struggling student and didn't have the money for a taxi the whole way, but I had a screwdriver in my pocket and my bunch of skeleton keys. I was so desperate to get home that I planned to nick a car in Peterborough 
hitchhike, steal some money, something, anything. I just knew from my dad's tone of voice that my mother was going to die that night, and I intended to get home if it killed me. Tickets, please, I heard, as I stared blankly out the window at the passing darkness. I fumbled for my ticket and gave it to the guard when he approached. He stamped it, but just then he stood there looking at me. I'd been crying, had red eyes, and must have looked a fright. You okay, he asked. Of course I'm okay, I said. Why wouldn't I be? And what's it got to do with you in any case? You look awful, he said. Is there anything I can do? You could get lost and mind your own business, I said. That'd be a big help. I wasn't in the mood for talking. He was only a little bloke, and he must have read the danger signals in my body language and tone of voice. But he sat down opposite me anyway and continued to engage me. If there's a problem, I'm here to help. That's what I'm paid for. I was a big bloke in my prime, so I thought for a second about physically sending him on his way. But somehow it didn't seem appropriate. He wasn't really doing much wrong. I was going through all the stages of grief at once. Denial, anger, guilt, withdrawal. Everything but acceptance. I was a bubbling cauldron of emotion, and he had placed himself in my line of fire. The only thing I could think of to get rid of him was to tell him my story. Look, my mom's in the hospital dying. She won't survive the night. I'm going to miss the connection in Leeds at Peterborough. I'm not sure how I'm going to get home. It's tonight or never. I won't get another chance. I'm a bit upset. I don't feel like talking. I'd be grateful if you'd leave me alone, okay? Okay, he said, finally getting up. Sorry to hear that, son. I'll leave you alone then. Hope you make it home in time. Then he wandered off down the carriage back the way he came. I continued to look out the window at the dark. Ten minutes later, he was back at my side of the table. Oh no, I thought. Here we go again. This time I'm really going to rag him down that train. He touched my arm. Listen, when we get to Peterborough, shoot straight over to the platform one as quick as you like. The Leeds train will be there. I looked dumbfounded. Wasn't really registering. Come again? I said stupidly. What do you mean? Is it late or something? No, it isn't late, he said, defensively, as if he really cared whether trains were late or not. No, I just radioed Peterborough. They're going to hold the train up for you. As soon as you get on, it goes. Everyone will be complaining about how late it is, but let's not worry about that on this occasion. You'll get home, and that's the main thing. Good luck, and God bless. Then he was off down the train again. Tickets, please? Any more tickets now? I suddenly realized what a top-class, full-fledged doylem I was and chased him down the train. I wanted to give him all the money for my wallet, my driver's license, my keys, but I knew he'd be offended. I caught him up and grabbed his arm. Oh, we're, uh, I just wanted to... I was suddenly specious. I, um... Uh, it's okay, he said. Not a problem. He had a warm smile on his face and true compassion in his eyes. He was a good man for its own sake and required nothing in return. I wish I had some way to thank you, I said. I appreciate what you've done. Not a problem, he said again. If you feel the need to thank me, the next time you see someone in trouble, you help them out. That will pay me black back amply. Tell them to pay you back the same way, and soon the world will be a better place. I was at my mother's side when she died in the early hours of the morning. Even now, I can't think of her without remembering the good conductor 
on that late night train to Peterborough, and to this day I won't hear a bad word said about the British Rail. My meeting with the good conductor changed me from a selfish, potentially violent hedonist into a decent human being, but it took time. I've paid him back a thousand times since then, I tell the young people I work with, and I'll keep on doing so until the day I die. You don't owe me nothing, nothing at all. And if you think you do, I'd give you the same advice the good conductor gave me. Pass it down the line. There's another wonderful story that I'll put in my blog and on my website from Ashok Ramasubramanian. It's called Joy and talks about his first encounter with some delicious chocolate. So today's talk is basically organized into four parts. Generosity is a vehicle of meaning and motivation. Generosity is a way of letting go or softening our expectations and attachments. Then we'll go into an exploration of the some types of generosity and research informed practices you might try exploring. So generosity opening the door of our mind to meaning, purpose, and motivation. I guess I'll start by looking at the obstacles that we see to our generosity as we go about our day. First, there's a perception of scarcity that I, if I give, I won't have enough. Uh, and that's related to a fear of being taken advantage of. And just the fact that giving reminds us of our vulnerability, our interconnection, and our needs. Sometimes we're not generous when we don't feel a connection. So oftentimes <clears throat> when your generosity goes unrecognized, you don't feel like doing it much longer. And there's also obligations and differences among people that can hold us back. But like mindfulness and so many of these contemplative practices, generosity can be practiced and the skill can be developed. As we build our skills, it becomes more natural and begins to nourish us. I find the sense of connection and belonging that generosity and gratitude uh, creates to be one of the most nourishing emotional practices available to me. These twin qualities of generosity and gratitude are so critical to our human interconnection and interdependence with all beings. A bit later, I'll talk more about Back on My Feet, which is an organization that uses running to combat homelessness. But that's one place that I found real meaningful connection through generosity, both as a recipient and as a giver. At Back on My Feet, we run together, volunteers and those experiencing homelessness. Through deep listening to each other, we're all able to offer something regardless of our circumstances, our skills, or our state of mind. As these qualities are uncovered, it makes you want to engage more. It starts a flywheel whose impact is impossible to measure as people are touched by others without even really realizing it. So the second piece I'd like to talk about is generosity as a way of letting go or softening our expectations and attachments in a way unleashing authentic generosity. It's one of my favorite lenses through which to view generosity, this letting go of expectations, letting go of attachments. Because when we're generous, we move out of the 
comparing and judging and analyzing mind that characterizes most of our experience. Meditation teacher Sharon Salzberg has written about the positive effect generosity can have on one's sense of freedom and lightness of being. When we give, we continually find ourselves testing our limits. She writes, our attachments say, I will give this much and no more, or I will give this article or this object if I'm appreciated enough for doing so. The practice of generosity, says Salzberg, is about creating a space. We see our limits and we extend them continuously, which creates an expansiveness and opening of the mind. Generosity's greatest quality emerges from this gesture of letting go, letting go of a sense that something's mine, that I deserve it, that it only belongs to me. This also makes choosing to let go instead of doing it out of obligation a critical step in authentic, life-enriching generosity. Salzberg describes two aims of giving. The first, she says, is to free our minds from the conditioned forces that bind and limit us. She writes, craving, clinging, and attachment bring confinement and lack of self-esteem. If we're always looking for some person or thing to complete us, we miss the degree to which we are complete in every moment. It's a bit like leaning on a mirage only to find it can't hold us. There's nothing there. The second purpose, she writes, is to free others, to extend welfare and happiness to all beings, to lessen the suffering in the world. When our practice of generosity is genuine, we realize inner spaciousness and peace, and we also extend boundless caring to all living beings. So in this way, the act of giving recognizes that there's an exchange between uh, people that's beyond objects. Um, And this creates more giving, more love, and more generosity. There's another teaching story of the farmer who is frantically searching for his lost cows, and he comes across a group of monks. He's distraught because he can't find these valuable cows. He passes along, and after after he leaves, the monks marvel to themselves of how lucky they are to not have to worry about cows. I can relate to this story as I, too, like all humans, carry many cows around with me, these expectations and desires. A good mentor once told me, let go of your cows. And through generosity, this release becomes possible and also has purpose. Now, the other person you might like to check out related to generosity is University of Pennsylvania professor Adam Grant. There's certainly been some criticism as an industry has developed to explore how harnessing generosity can improve productivity, can improve profitability uh, for the American workforce. And Grant is, of course, at the front line of this trend. At the end of the day, though, I, I feel Grant understands that driving meaning and purpose do create better workers, but even more importantly, leads to more resilient and possibly happier individuals. You might enjoy a recent episode of the radio show and podcast On Being with Krista Tippett, where she interviews Grant, who authored the book Give and Take. 
Grant makes several salient observations using a framework of personality types he calls givers, matchers, and takers. Like Salzberg, he argues the most successful givers are those who rate high in concern for others, but also in self-interest. They are strategic in their giving so that their work has the maximum desired effect. They give in ways that reinforce their social ties, and they consolidate their giving into chunks so that the impact is intense enough to be gratifying. Grant writes extensively about satisfaction in the workplace and observes that meaning in work is heavily driven by a sense that we are being of service in an arena that harnesses our gifts, our skills. He talks about how individuals constantly offer microloans of knowledge, skills, and connections in ways that transform and shape experience. These five-minute favors are more likely to be meaningful and less likely to leave us feeling burned out. Grant observes that givers have a tendency to either be wildly successful or just plain burned out. The distinctions he makes is that successful givers are very discerning. They say yes to the things that they have time for, have unique skills for, or resources to contribute and help them feel connected. Failed givers, on the other hand, tend to say yes to everything. Like Sharon Salzberg suggested in her own way, Grant's research indicates that the most selfless givers tend to be less successful. Eventually, you run out of energy, patience, and resources, no matter how giving you are, if you aren't getting something out of it yourself. So the third section, just exploring some types of generosity and the habits um, that surround them. And I'm not thinking of habits necessarily in negative terms, but in fact as the result of practice, either through unconscious habit of always doing things a certain way, or a more supportive practice that comes from intentional action, repeated many times for positive effect. So the first of these types is generosity of presence. The poet and author Maya Angelou has written, I've learned that people will forget what you said. People will forget what you did. But people will never forget how you made them feel. And that's what generosity of presence is about for me. A few years back, I saw the Dalai Lama in Madison, Wisconsin, with my friend Patrick. And as the Dalai Lama began his talk, I suddenly realized that I wouldn't be understanding a word he said. Uh, It's hard to understand him uh, in this cavernous room, and the microphones weren't very good. Every once in a while, he'd use his uh, uh, helper to translate some passages. But as many have written about, the Dalai Lama's presence was really the gift he offered. Every few sentences, he would burst into a gentle laughter, which had a meaning of its own. Patrick and I left the talk early, a bit confused, but carrying with us a sense of awe and calmness that transcended any words. Oftentimes, the generosity of presence isn't even fully conscious on the part of the giver. It's hard to quantify the meaning of the phrase, you were always there for me, but we know it when we see it, right? I have a good friend, Jim, who helped me through a difficult time by joining me for 
a morning walk nearly every day for weeks. If you ask him, he'll probably tell you we were just out for a stroll, but it was way more than that to me. Another friend of mine regularly reminds me how I made it a point to join him for lunch each week as he struggled through cancer treatment and how much that meant to him. The interesting thing is that I don't completely recall if that was intentional on my part. I almost wonder if it was a coincidence and that I was just hungry. Another form of generosity is the generosity of assumptions. Generosity can also be very humbling. I ask myself through generosity of assumption if I can defer judgment in a situation and extend instead bring curiosity. It is rare that someone hurts or insults me just for fun. Instead, it's often the result of some challenge or unhappiness in their own life. It isn't about me. In our current political environment, the generosity of assumption is ever so critical. The political environment seems to force us into boxes of belief that aren't very practical or even accurate. We all have different opinions and our support of a particular party or politician doesn't represent all that we are. Brene Brown writes about this in her new book, Rising Strong. She suggests a way of relating where you extend the most generous interpretation possible to the intentions, words, and actions of others. This isn't to say that you become soft and flaky. It's more of a recognition that we are all coming from different experiences, causes, and conditions that inform our actions and our speech. Oftentimes, our assumptions about others are more based in our habitual way of responding to others and Through exploration, we might approach a clarity that is based on our present moment experience instead. In this way, we can actually become more discerning and even choose not to relate to certain people when our full faculties suggest that it isn't safe or supportive. Generosity of assumption and presence is the cornerstone of the organization I spoke about earlier here in Philadelphia. It's called Back on My Feet. Back of My Feet uses running to restore confidence, strength, and self-esteem to individuals experiencing homelessness. It's a unique model that first seeks to empower individuals, including volunteers, to take charge by building a consistent running routine through regular 5.30 a.m. runs as a team. When I first started volunteering, my instinct was to ask those experiencing homelessness what they were working on to get a job or a house or some sort of education. But I quickly realized that the true gift of this organization was offering fellowship and presence. You can only do this by letting go of some of your prejudgments and beliefs about what led to these individuals' current predicament. This opens one up to authentic relationship and connection. At 5.30 in the morning, we're all just humans. This has proven to be a very effective model. After participants have spent some time being seen and heard by others, the organization offers job training, education, and housing assistance that is supercharged by a newfound sense of self that drives some very positive outcomes. And finally, generosity is a critical component of self-care, and self-compassion. 
when we treat ourselves with kindness, regardless of the result of our circumstances or situation, we, we aren't giving ourselves a free pass. We're just allowing ourselves the generosity of assumptions and presence that offers the promise of forgiveness and understanding. This opens us up to taking risks, being creative and curious as we embrace our vulnerability and live with a sense of wholeheartedness. So on to the practice. There are several research-informed practices that you can use to build your generosity muscle. One website I find particularly amazing is the site for Greater Good Science Center, which has links and descriptions for many such practices. I'll include a link to these on my blog, newsletter, and website, but you can also search for them yourself. Each of these plays on our natural inclination towards kindness and caring that's sometimes masked by our expectations, our obligations, and our judgments. So the first is called remembering connection. Humans have a capacity to be kind, and it's strongest when we feel connected to other people. It's a bit of a flywheel. As we feel connected, we have an instinct to connect more deeply. In this exercise, one recalls a deep, intimate connection with someone in their lives. Actually writing about it instead of just thinking about it seems to make it more real, to come alive as a practice. So you reflect on these feelings and it opens your heart and can motivate you to help others. This support increases the happiness of yourself and others and builds relationship. The research here suggests that this sort of pro-social behavior has a nice tail to it as participants in a study who reflected on a meaningful remembered connection had stronger intention to be generous over the following six weeks in ways such as giving money or helping strangers. Another practice is called shared identity. Isolation and group difference keep us from harnessing our generosity. So, This is about identifying the commonalities we see with those who we think of as different from us. We tend to feel less motivated to help those that are not part of our group. In fact, this is somewhat of a protective mechanism to keep us from feeling overwhelmed as we deal with all the difficulty and challenge in the world. So in this exercise, you're asked to think of a person who seems very different from you in every way imaginable might be a family member, a co-worker, an ex, or even a public or historical figure. Then you begin to make a list of everything you share in common with this person. It might begin as simply as, we both have two legs and two arms. You've both probably experienced loss or pain, joy or excitement. And so after you finish this list, you review it and reflect on them as an individual, perhaps a flawed one, but one that shares 99% of your common DNA as a fellow human being. The Greater Good Science Center writes, reminding people to see the basic humanity that they share with those who might seem different from them can help overcome fear and distrust and promote cooperation. Like most mindful practices, this is aspirational. You don't have to feel a certain way or be positively inclined. 
It's just a practice. And the final practice I'll share with you is probably a bit cliche, but the research is there to support its effectiveness. Random acts of kindness. Sonia Lubomirsky has written extensively about the science of happiness. I'm not entirely comfortable with some of her conclusions related to happiness, including how much agency we have to shape it. However, her work reached a fascinating conclusion. Individuals who performed five acts of kindness per week, but did them all in a single day, saw a meaningful increase in happiness. It might be argued that bunching together our acts of kindness creates some level of intentionality and also helps us remember them. And the other thing is if they're spread out, they might become routine and less noticeable. Just another thing that needs to be checked off of our to-do list. So the value of randomness here, which is probably not quite the right word, maybe variety is a better way to explain it, highlights the importance of keeping our generosity fresh so that we and others recognize the act and appreciate it rather than expect it. Performing random acts of kindness supports our prosocial connected behavior and can even contribute to self-esteem. So I hope you found some interesting ideas here about generosity and purpose, generosity and letting go, generosity of presence or assumption, as well as a couple practical applications of these teaching. So please try some of them out yourself and let me know how they go. I wish you a warm and wonderful holiday season, as well as the resilience and presence to persevere through any challenges or difficulties you might be facing at this time. And I trust you'll be able to bring generosity to all of it. Thank you.